We're into Hebrews chapter 12. And for those of you who can look ahead, you know we got at least one more chapter, Hebrews 13. We're not going to preach Hebrews 14 because it doesn't exist. Uh, but we've been in Hebrews now for several months. And anybody tired of Hebrews? Good, because you could just leave. Just kidding. Eventually we're going to get through it. But there's just so much encouragement that comes from getting to open the scriptures and, and take a look each week and go, God, what do you have for us in these words? Because the words have been there, and many of you have read them before, and I've read them before. And as I prepare a sermon this week, and I'm just reading through it, and, I'm, and, it's, and God's kind of opening up to me in a new way and encouraging me in a new way. I hope, that, I hope that you don't get tired of diving into the scripture and just saying, God, would you speak something to my heart? Would you communicate something to me that encourages me? And that challenges me. And, and I get the privilege of doing that each week. And I'll tell you why I need it. I need it. I feel so blessed to be able to, to spend time studying and, and diving into the Word of God because of all people, I think I need it more than anybody. And now that's just kind of the way that I look at it. Um, but I hope that you find that encouragement this morning. Last week, we heard a message from Pastor Scott and Jeannie, and we jumped into Hebrews 12 last week, and, and this passage is all about the discipline of God. And how many of you love discipline? You remember when you were a kid? Anybody do what I did? I got the wooden spoon out of the drawer, and I walked around the house, and I practiced. I go, and I would hit myself because I wanted to be ready the next time I got disciplined. <laughs> I am not kidding you. And that was just the way that my little brain thought, you know what, rather than behave and not get spanked, I'll just toughen up. I'll, I don't know if I thought I'll be, build a callus or what. <laughs> but we don't, like, none, none of us like discipline. We hate discipline. Why is it? Why do we hate discipline? The fact of the matter is we want something, and we don't like to hear the word wait, and we really don't like to hear the word no. I have a little human reminder of the reality that we do not like discipline. She's not quite two, and my kid is really sweet. Ember is, she's amazing. But you can tell when she's tired and when she hasn't eaten and when she loses her mind, because <laughs> she's not two yet. She can't hide it, right? When you, I mean, if you have a toddler or have, you remember when their kids were toddlers, and when you tell them no, they just, they just cry and they scream and they don't want to hear it. Even if you're telling them not right now, and Ember has gotten really good, she'll go, eat ice cream later. And you go, yeah, or see Jojo later. And when one time we were, we, we, we were getting ready for swimming lessons and she wanted to go to the pool and we said, we're going we're gonna to go back on Monday. So then she started going, go swimming on Monday, swimming pool on Monday. And so now when sometimes we'll tell her she needs to wait and she'll go, ice cream on Monday. <laughs> anyway, it's just funny. Like she's just saying, okay, I have to wait. And mom and dad usually, <laughs> they come through with that little <laughs> reward for waiting. Anyway, but we, it's just a reminder. We don't like to hear the word wait, and we don't like to hear the word no. And as we grow up, <laughs> we're supposed to learn <laughs> to deal with the concept of no in a more mature way. Have you ever seen an adult who throws a toddler tantrum? No? Well, yeah, it happens. Just go to Starbucks. Right? Anybody ever work at Starbucks or in any service industry? <laughs> anyway. Don't be that person, by the way. Anyway, uh, we don't like to hear the word no. Even today, we've learned other ways to cope, kind of. And, and we don't like to hear the word wait. And you can see it in our culture and by the, the crazy amount of personal debt that people are in. It's, it's like we've come up with ways to not have to tell ourselves no. And now this isn't the Dave Ramsey show, so I'm not going to go on a rant about it or anything like that. But when I look at our culture and I, I look at the challenge and the easiness of which we can get into that, it, it just shows me, it shows me this, this human condition that we don't want to have to wait. We don't want to have to wait. We don't want to be told no. And this generation that's growing up is getting even more so that way because everything is instant. Instant. It's crazy. I mean, like, even when I was a kid, like, if you wanted to watch a movie, you'd either have to go to a movie store to rent it or wait 
till it came out on video. And nowadays, you just go on the internet and you hook up to Netflix or anything like that, and you can get anything immediately. Kids are growing up with that, and it's it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just plays into this struggle that we have with the idea and concept of waiting or putting off gratification. And and so inside the church, we talk about things like this, and we, we need to recognize the brokenness of our culture. A lot of times we focus on specific issues like sexual brokenness in our culture, and we look at the ways that our culture uh, is broken that way, or we look at money problems, but it's just an indication of our lack of faith. It's just our indication of our lack of trusting God. I'm not trying to heap guilt on you if you're in a place where you're like, I'm trying to get out of debt. But it's just, it, it just shows us the, the world that we live in isn't encouraging us in that way. We live in a culture that has the illusion that we are the ones who are in control of our own lives and happiness. It's, it's a part of our world. I mean, even, even, in our, even in the founding of our country, the pursuit of happiness was built in. It's wired into us. It's something that we feel like we have a right to. As we, it's almost like we just sprung up from the ground on our own. <laughs> and by our own efforts, and we should be able to have what we want and do what we want when we want. And that's kind of the world that we live in. This is, this is the influence of sin <laughs> that we live with. It's, it's, it's in us. It's not just something we do. It's, it's all around us. It's influencing us. And there's so many different times and so many different ways that we were pulled in those directions. And I, can't, I don't have time to go over all of them. And I don't know you all well enough to know what it is in your life. And I have a hard enough time trying to identify it in my own life. But it's there. It's, it's, it's there. And discipline is God's answer to that. It's, it's the reality that that we have to know and trust God. That when we are told no or wait or not that way, we can go, God, you're good. I'm going to listen. Sometimes it's, it's circumstances we struggle with and we don't know what to do with and we just have to trust God. It's discipline because we want to believe that we're the authority, but we are not the authority. In our culture, we do not like authority, do we? Yeah? No, we don't. We don't like it. We don't like the concept of it unless they're making everything better for us. And that's what politicians are all about, right? They all come out and say, we'll make the life the easiest for you. So you want us in authority until they get there. And then everybody's like, boo, you didn't do what you said you'd do. My life's still hard. Bring it in the next guy, you know? And that's kind of the way that our world works. It's because we don't like to be under authority. We don't like the resistance that comes from it. We, we need to recognize, of all people, that we have an enemy. We have an enemy, and he is the instigator of rebellion against the authority of God. That's initially what he did to start this whole broken cycle. He instigated rebellion. You really won't trust God? You really trust God's authority? That when he said, don't eat of that, that he was telling you something that was good for you? You really believe that? And it just subtly, this influence worked into them, and it's a part of all of our lives. It's a part of all of us, and we need to recognize it. Of all people, we need to recognize that influence so that we can understand the discipline of trusting God, that we can understand that God loves his kids, and if you love your kids, you've got to teach them discipline. We have to teach them that we are ultimately not the authority, and parents if you're not under the authority of God, you're not a very good authority. We have to do it under the authority of God. We don't like it. <laughs> There's a constant struggle against sin and brokenness within our own lives, let alone the culture that we live in. We live in this world that's so broken, and it wants us to compromise, to give up those little wait for it, to say, I'll just reach for it now. There's so much influence. It's all around us. It's advertising. It's media, TV, pop culture, entertainment, technology. It's, this, it's, it's really hard to miss it. It's all around us. So I decided that we're going to move to East Lewis County and build a compound, and we'll all just go move there. <laughs> right? Sorry. You know, why? you know why that wouldn't work? Anybody ever had that thought cross your mind? Okay, I know you do. <laughs> it's like, this world is just so hard. I'm just going to move out. You know why that won't work? 
because you're going to be there and I'm going to be there. <laughs> and the problem goes with us. I love, the, I think it's Paul Tripp that says, no matter how far you run from your problems, you take them with you because <laughs> you take you with you. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. Discipline is God's answer. Discipline. Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. We talked about this last week. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. Remember that the Greek word there that's translated sons literally means both sides of that, sons and daughters. It's for discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If we want to serve God, but not be under the discipline and authority of God, we're basically saying, I I don't want to be a real son. I want to be an illegitimate son. God's saying, no, no, no. I've called you to be my son, to have all the rights and privileges and inheritance of being my son. And with it, it's going to come the discipline of being and living under the authority of God. And we kind of, authority. But we have to trust God and know God is, he's a better dad than any of us could ever imagine. I have a really, I have a goal as every dad does to be a great dad. But ultimately I struggle and I might be able to keep a good face, but I'm having a hard time. I have to trust God and I have to know my limitations and, and hopefully I'm pointing my kids, will point my kids to God as the great father but if we don't accept the discipline of God and recognize it, we're living as illegitimate children. See, we shouldn't be like the two-year-old who can't understand that putting the ice cream in the freezer means that you get to eat it later, right? When we treat life as if we need it now, we're acting like that. God's saying, hey, you saw the ice cream. You know that it's there. In my house, when we get ice cream, Ember gets some. (laughs) We need to trust God that what's being put off till later is going to be better than if we had it now. That ultimately, everything that we desire, everything that we long for, may not come in the way that we long for it or desire it, but it's going to be better. It's going to be better. And that is the heart of discipline, is trusting God. See, Christian discipleship is a life of willing submission by faith to the discipline of trusting Father God. Christian discipleship, the word discipleship has discipline in it, okay? The word Christian discipleship is a life of willing submission by faith to the discipline of trusting Father God. We go and we say, what, this is what you've done for me. Thank you. I want to be your kid. I want to be your kid. And he says, I want you to be my kid. I love you. I love you so much. Until, and then that first time we hear no, <laughs> it's like, all right, you and me are not on good terms now. <laughs> I thought you loved me. Anybody have kids that are, they're at the point now where they can, they can question that. It's like, but so-and-so's parents, they let them do whatever they want. <laughs> Any of you, were you like that as kids? It's like you, you use the fact that you know your parents love you to like undermine their authority as if it could work like that with God, right? It's like, oh, yeah, if you really loved me, then these bad things wouldn't have happened to me. Make it right, God. <laughs> and he's going, trust me. Trust me. Do you know? Do you know I love you? Do you know it? Can you see it even though everything around you looks broken? Can you trust me? Can you know that it's better, it's the best ice cream that you've ever tasted that's in that freezer? (laughs) Just wait. It'll come. See, we don't do it perfectly. We don't willingly submit by faith to trusting God (laughs) perfectly. No one does. A few weeks ago, we, were in, we, we spent weeks in this chapter of Hebrews 11 about the hall of faith. And every single one of those characters that we talked about at some point lost the perspective of trusting God and they failed in their faith. It's a part of all of their stories. And there's a reason that they're all included in there. 
It's, in, it's important that we recognize that, that the scriptures actually tell us about those feelings in order for us to not get discouraged when we feel like giving up. When you lose perspective, we don't need to be ashamed of that. We need to turn back to God. We need it. Every single person who has ever tried to follow Jesus has gotten tired, wanted to give up, needed encouragement, and needed to be reminded. We need it. So Hebrews 12, 12 says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. See, some of you barely made it in here this morning. You may not look like it on the outside, but inside you're barely holding on in faith. And honestly, there are a lot of times that we don't want to acknowledge how tired and how weak our faith is. Our circumstances wear on us. Other people wear on us. Anybody say amen? (laughs) Our own brokenness and sin It wears on us. Faith that seems so strong at one point can get worn thin and feel, it can feel like it's barely hanging on. It is a very uncomfortable place for the evangelical Christian. We do not do this wrestle with faith very well because for some reason, somewhere along the way, it became the practice that If your faith was struggling, then there was something really wrong with you. And you needed to get it right. You needed to not let anybody know. You needed to have the right answer. You needed to be able to puff yourself up. You needed to be able to carry on. You needed to just know that God's with you. We kind of shut down the the intimacy that God, that he invited us into as a part of his family with others to come alongside of us. And so we put on these faces and we walk around as if we don't have problems. We don't have negative feelings. We don't have fears and we don't have failures. We have faith. Yeah. And we act like we've got it figured out as if we're the first person in the history of life (laughs) to never have a moment where you feel weak. In fact, that's almost the exact opposite of what we say when we come and take communion at the end of the gathering. We come and say, I'm weak, I'm a failure. I've fallen, and I need you. Church, we're invited into the family of God, which we don't have to act like we have it all put together. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak, your weak knees. We struggle because we're not comfortable with those negative feelings because we associate them with our faith. Can I tell you something? Our feelings are not our faith. Your feelings are not your faith. That's not a very mature way to walk with God. Go read the Psalms. Go read David. There's a reason that it's included in there because God's okay with us hurting. He's okay with us questioning. He's okay with us not feeling certain. He's okay with that if we do it in faith. If we say, I don't know how to deal with this, God, but I'm gonna trust you. I may not feel like I want to wait, but I'm going to trust you. We need to let others into those moments because we need others to come alongside of us. We look around the room and we see people who've got it, you know, at least you've got it put together. You're not in here just falling apart. And so we kind of get this feeling, as I was saying earlier, like we're the only one who might be feeling like wanting to give up. And there's a reason that We've had this entire book of encouragement, of trusting the grace of God and looking to him and recognizing that you can't do it on your own, that Jesus paid it all once and for all. Here's the heroes of the faith. All of them struggled at times. And we come to this moment, you have to trust in God in order to get through this life. And we call it discipline. And he says, be encouraged. Strengthen your hands. Strengthen your weak knees. As maturing followers of Jesus, we do not base our life and our faith on how we feel. Feelings can be good. It's great to feel like, God, I'm so thankful for the blessings in in my life. I'm so glad you died on the cross. It causes me to cry a lot of times because I'm weepy, okay? But I don't base my faith on how I'm feeling. It's like, because when I'm not feeling that way, is it any less true? No, it's not. We need to have something else to base our path on 
other than our feelings. Hebrews 12, 13 says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Make straight paths for your feet. This is just the author's way of saying, have a plan for where you're headed with your faith. Have a plan to make your path straight. This is why it's important, why we have a weekly gathering, why we invite you into regularly scheduled community because in our schedules, it doesn't just happen unintentionally. Oftentimes, we need to plan it because we're, we're saying, I'm going to make a straight path for my feet because I'm going to get tired. You know that your faith gets wounded? I'd love to say that it's, that's impervious to all struggles that my faith is, but it's not. I, I get down. I get discouraged. I start to get fearful. I fail. I need to trust God. I need other people in my life to come alongside me. It's a part of making a straight path. And what does it say? It says, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather may be healed. It's like our faith, our spirit is like our physical body. Anybody ever suffer from agonizing chronic pain or you twist an ankle or you have a back go out? Imagine that for your spirit, right? But instead of going to see the doctor or the chiropractor or whoever, the physician, or talking to somebody about it, you just try to get along. <clears throat> Over time, if you don't let your body heal, it will permanently be damaged. That's what the author is saying. We need to make straight paths for our feet so that what's lame will not be put out of joint. It won't continue to just be a malfunction but that it rather will be healed. We're healed when we come to the reality that we need Jesus again. We come to others and we open up and we say, hey, I don't have it all together. I've been trying to. And then, and then if you have any kind of spiritual discernment, you look at them and go, I know. I've been watching you struggle for a while. And you're starting to have a pretty significant limp. Can we heal that? You may not even recognize it in your own life because you've been living with it for so long this wounding that happened somewhere to your spirit, to your faith, that question that you couldn't trust God with. You've been living with it, and you're living like out of joint. You're not wanting to let go of your faith, but you're also not getting the healing that you need because you won't come clean. You won't ask God. You won't trust others with that part of you. And God's saying, make straight paths for your feet so that what's lame may be healed instead of put out of joint. It's part of making a straight path that we find healing for our souls and for our spirit and for our faith. You can't do it on your own, right? If your joint's out of place, it's really hard to put it back in on your, on your own. You need somebody else to set it. That's what we're invited into as a part of the family. Now, what I don't want you to do is go up to somebody and be like, hey, you know you're walking with, your faith's walking with a limp. <laughs> now, if they ask you, or if maybe, maybe you'd, you might feel a discernment from the Holy Spirit to do that. But do it gently. Because if somebody's been out of joint, <laughs> you're not going to help them by clobbering them. The Holy Spirit has to do that work. We need others in our lives. It says this in Hebrews 12, 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone <laughs> and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Just pause on this verse for a second as you read this. Anybody else read that and just go, <laughs> am I the only one that hears that as just like pie in the sky? Like strive for peace with everyone? Like does God even understand the world that we live in? I mean, some people just based on their political agenda, they, you can't even sit in the same room with them. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness that without which you will not see the Lord. That sounds so unattainable to me. It sounds so unattainable to me to strive for peace. And here's what the author is saying. He's not saying that you're going to find peace in every situation with every person. It's, it's a reminder of this little thing that Jesus said called the Sermon on the Mount. This author is, is, is aware of these teachings that Jesus said. It's, you can find it in the Gospels. You can find it in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called Sons of God. So we strive for peace. It's a sign of our sonship. It's a sign of our daughterhood that we would strive for peace. 
It's echoing the words of Jesus, that we could be peacemakers. And then he says, and then Jesus would go on later, and he would say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the author of Hebrews is referencing this, this teaching that Jesus had. Be peace, be at peace. Be a peacemaker. Because the sons of God are peacemakers. Your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees and scribes who tried as hard as they could. They would literally give up everything in order to keep the law and to be found righteous. We have to exceed that. And this is what we are striving for by faith. Can I throw that in there? By faith, this is what we strive for. You know what that word strive implies is that you're going const- to forever be doing that. <laughs> you're not, it's not, in a minute we're going to use the word obtain, which is a different word. He's saying strive. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive. We are to strive for holiness. Romans 12, 18 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. How many of you like that better than be at peace with everyone? If possible, as long as it depends on you, right? Okay, I can do my part. I can be a peacemaker. doesn't mean that I'm going to be at peace with everyone because you know what? God has a call on my life and that sometimes the gospel is going to be offensive to people and I, it's not my responsibility to make them feel okay with that. But I can't do it in a way to intentionally hurt people. I'm going to be doing it in a way and hopefully bring them to peace with God. As, long as, it, as, as much as it depends on us, we're to be peacemakers. And that we're to strive for holiness. Without this holiness, we will not see Jesus, is what the author is saying. Doesn't that feel like a lot of pressure? Or do you guys just kind of throw that phrase out like it doesn't mean anything? It says that without this holiness, we will, if, without reaching that, attaining that, striving for that, we will not see Jesus. We have to remember our theology, right? This is where we don't just take one verse and take it out of context. We have to remember what we've learned in Hebrews. The author has reminded us that Jesus, he's justified us. He's cleansed us. Once and for all, he died for all sin so that in front of God the Father, like we are viewed as righteous, as holy. Once and for all. So this concept of striving, this concept of continuing, it's like God said, you're my son, I see you as my son, and now we're going to work on you becoming more like my son. And so it's striving after that. That's important. This is the striving of our faith, is to to continue to pursue that calling. If you come to Jesus and that's not your desire, then you probably need to reevaluate. I've met people who who come into, they come to their faith and and what they're really looking for is a way to get clean or they're looking for a way to, to, to build their family and have community. And those things aren't necessarily bad things. But that's not the end goal of God in your life. (laughs) It's like going to the dentist. And I've used this illustration. C.S. Lewis talked about that. When he was a kid, when he'd have a toothache, he didn't want to to tell his mom because his mom would take him to the dentist. And the dentist wouldn't just fix the one that hurt. The dentist would check all the teeth. Because the dentist's goal wasn't just that the one pain would go away, but that he would have healthy teeth. God's not just going to, he's not just going to let you deal with the thing that's causing the disruption in your life right now. He wants all of you. We have to recognize that and, and come willingly and submit. That's what we're about. That's what discipleship is. To come to God and say, I'm a mess. I don't just want you to fix me the way that I would fix me. I want to trust you in the process that you have for me, that you have the good in mind that I can't see. And this is striving. This is what we strive for. Do we get tired of the discipline of trusting God? Do we get tired of waiting? Do we reach for things at the wrong time? Yeah, we do. 
And when we do that, we need others and we need to come back and we need to repent and turn back to God. It says this in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So we have to strive for peace and strive for holiness, but we're going to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, the gospel. The gospel is that you're not perfect and that Jesus is. The gospel is that you deserve death and he took it. The gospel is that he rose again so that we could have new life in pursuit of God. Don't let anything that you're feeling, any struggle that you have, rob you of obtaining that grace. It's yours. It's mine. And then it goes on and says, it's basically saying, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. See to it that no root of bitterness. And did you notice something in the, in the, the scripture there? It uses this, these two little lines on both sides of it, quotations. Okay, how many of you think what it's saying there is don't get bitter? It doesn't make sense. As I was reading, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. And then you see that little, that little notation. This is a quote from somewhere. If you have a great Bible that has a cross-reference, it'll tell you this is coming, the author is quoting Deuteronomy. He's referencing a specific thing in the history of the people of Israel, a specific warning about this root of bitterness. It's not just talking about don't let bitterness grow in your life. It's a specific reference. The root of bitterness. This is like, you know how our our lives are, are equated to a tree that bears fruit? We're part of the vine. Jesus used that illustration. The root of bitterness is a different root. It's a different branch. It's not the vine that Jesus is. It's not the vine that grows the fruit of the Spirit. It's a vine that grows bitter roots, bitter fruit. You're not going to grow the fruit of the Spirit if there's a root of bitterness. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 29, 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the God's of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to me sweeping, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke a man against that man. And the curses written in the book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. When this author of Hebrews is referring the root of bitterness in reference to obtaining the grace of God, it's warning us against claiming the grace of God and not striving to be transformed by it. When we have people who come to the gospel, when we do this ourselves, and we say, thank you, Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness, and we have zero intention of letting that transform us, we're a root of bitterness. We are not gonna bear the fruit of the Spirit, we're gonna bear bitter, poisonous fruit. It's it's the warning that not only does that affect the one person, but it sweeps away an entire tribe, an entire clan. It tarnishes the name of Jesus. This isn't just being a sinner. This is the kind of hypocrisy that creeps up when we claim the gospel and we act like we don't need it. And that's what happens when the root of bitterness takes hold. We basically start to feel like, God, thank you for forgiving me. I don't need you to change me anymore. That's why we need to be reminded of our striving, that we're not just striving to fix that one issue, but we're striving for the holiness without which we won't see God, that we're striving, that that means that no matter how old you are, no matter where you are in your journey of faith, there's room to grow because you're not perfect yet. And I know I'm talking to a room that knows that, acknowledges that, but do we live that way? Do we live the way that we have people in our lives who, who we can be honest with about our feelings and how we're struggling and the fears that we have? Or do we, do we try and act like we don't have them? The author's saying, don't become that church. It's poisonous. Don't become that Christian who can talk about the grace of God but doesn't understand the work that God's doing in his or her life. 
It's poisonous. That's the root of bitterness. And the author is saying, strive for holiness. Today, if you're here and you're going, man, I, I'm, I, I'm not feeling like God's working in my life. Maybe because you're being stubborn and you're saying, God, you can't have that. I'm not going to give that to you. Do I, do, I really need to, do I really need to be honest about that? Do I really need to let others know that I struggle? And he's saying, yes. And if you have brothers and sisters who've obtained the grace, they're going to give it to you. But if we have a root of bitterness in us, when others confess sin, we look at them and we go, hmm, can't believe you. And spouses, this is a really big struggle because there's no one on the planet that you're closer to than your spouse and they need the grace that comes from God from you because there's, there's no other person that can administer the grace of God that's closer to than the spouse. And what happens in marriages is people have this root of bitterness that comes in. They may be sitting in the church and they're growing farther and farther apart because what's happening is there's, there's not a reality to their intimacy because they've stopped being able to trust that the other person will give grace when they fail or when they feel weak or when they have fears or anxieties. And so they don't talk about it and they don't deal with it and they're not growing together anymore in faith and holiness and the grace that we have in Jesus. And it's an incredibly scary thing when you've been walking together with a limp for years and years and years and then you're supposed to just expose that and say, oh yeah. And the gospel says, yeah. The gospel says it can be healed. It's incredible. It's incredible. The freedom that comes from that. I wish it was easy. It might need to be a reset bone or joint. It's going to be painful. It's going to be rehab. It's going to be physical therapy. And on the other side of it, it's walking as a son and not limping along. That's what we're called to, to obtain the grace of God. So you cannot obtain the grace of God and desire to say the same. Doesn't, they don't go hand in hand. As Christians, as people who say, I trust in Jesus, then you should always be aware of the work that he's trying to do in your life. And if you're not, then you need to seek him and ask him what he needs to do in your life. Grace is not just for us to feel good. It's a calling to follow Jesus and that he's opened the door for that. We have hope that we can grow and change and be more like him. But it requires a willingness to submit and trust God that his plan is good. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 so we're, we're, we're to see to it, right? That was the start of this verse. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The story of Esau is a very, very sad story. As a parent now with twin boys on the way, I read this story with a different kind of intensity. And I went back and I read it this week. As you you see Jacob and Esau, you see them in the womb. You see them wrestling. You see Jacob, as as Esau was born first, Jacob is grabbing onto his heel. It goes on to say that, that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So it tells us, as parents of of twin boys, that we better not pick favorites (laughs) because it wasn't a good thing. Esau was this this guy's guy, this manly man, right? If you read about it, it says he was born hairy, right? He was born hairy, and he was a hunter, and he was a butcher, and he was the man's man. He was the one that you wanted barbecuing. He was the one that you wanted to take you out in the woods because you're going to get that monster trophy elk, because that's Esau. So Jacob's like, yeah. Or, cause, so Isaac's like, yeah, that's my boy. And it says about Jacob that he was a man of the tent. Okay? 
That's like saying he was, the, he was the one who would do the cooking and he was the one who was spending time with mom, right? We see this, this tension already, even way, 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 way back then. We got the man's man and we got the, the guy that likes, to, you know, he's in the tent. <laughs> I don't know what exactly he's referring to, but that there's this tension between these two guys. Both sons. And, and Jacob... <laughs> He knows his brother is out hunting and he's probably hungry. Maybe this is one of the times that no hunter likes to admit that they got skunked. <laughs> right? They didn't have a good hunt. They were out in the woods, but they come, he's coming back hungry. He comes back hungry and, and Jacob's like, hey, brother, I learned a recipe. I don't need meat. It's lentil stew. <laughs> he smells so good. It smells so good. Esau comes in. He's so hungry. He's like, give me a bowl of that soup, brother. He says, sure, I'll, I'll give you a bowl of soup. You give me your birthright. I mean, after all, I was grabbing a hold of your ankle. I mean, we came out the same day. It's not fair, is it? You, I mean, so just trade me your birthright. I'll give you some soup. You'll be fed and it'll be good. And Esau, does this, it doesn't compute, does it? What is he thinking? Okay, so what I'm thinking that Esau is thinking, and this is a really not always a great thing to do, but I'm imagining that Esau is thinking, yeah, right. Like, yeah, right, brother. This isn't, I mean, he's, he's dad's favorite. You're not going to get my birthright for a cup of soup. But Jacob tricks him, goes in to Isaac. He wears these furs, <laughs> and he receives the blessing. And once that blessing is given, it can't be undone. And Esau is tricked out of his birthright because he was silly enough to trade it for a bowl of stew. And he sought to repent. And as I was looking at this, I'm like, Where? we have in this verse, in verse 16, sexual immoral and unholy like Esau. It's like, those are the two things that the author sees fit to talk about. <laughs> right? The story doesn't imply any sexual immorality. But this is the author's way of saying these are two things. This, this idea of trading something lasting for something fleeting. Trading the thing we know God has for us for something that feels good right now. This is the heart of all sin. This isn't just talking about sexual immorality. This is talking about sin, the failure to trust God, the loss of perspective that comes when we think, I can't wait, I need it now. I don't want to listen to what God has to say. I want to do what I want to do. And this isn't just about the current broken cultural struggles of sex. This is our own struggle with seeking to, to eliminate intimacy and seek pleasure. God has called us to something so much greater that we wouldn't be like Esau, who's unholy because he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. And that's essentially what happens when we sin. We make that stupid trade that doesn't make any sense. And in that moment, it feels right. We trade what we know was right for what? A better parking spot? No one relates to that. <laughs> we trade it for what? A few moments of sexual pleasure? We trade it for a bigger check or promotion. We trade it for the thing we want right now rather than waiting to save money for it. We, we do this transaction that doesn't make sense, but we, we, we're encouraged. There's nothing in the world that's saying, stop it. There's nothing in the world that's saying, hey, you don't need to wait. You could, they're, they're all saying, you don't need to wait. You can do what you want. And we go, no, God has a plan. He has a design. I'm not going to break it. And when we do, when we struggle, when we fail, because we're going to struggle and fail, we say we struggled and failed. We don't trample on this grace by saying, thank you for your grace, and now I can do what I want. See, the biggest problem that the church has with the issue of homosexuality and sexual immorality, period, is that for some reason, this thing becomes a thing that we can't say God's design is better. This is the thing that people are saying, hey, I can trust God and live this way. 
And that's like saying, God, thank you for your grace, but I don't want you to change me. I don't want to be under your authority. I don't want to live that way. It's a root of bitterness. And we all do it. We all act like Esau. And the author's saying, hey, don't let that derail your faith. See, Esau couldn't, he couldn't repent because Isaac made the statement, he made the blessing on Jacob. And once that happened, it was irrevocable. He couldn't go back and give it to Esau. And though Esau sought it with tears, he sought, he saw his father and he said, dad, I blew it. I didn't think he was honest. I didn't think he was telling me the truth. I didn't think he would actually do that. And Isaac is old and he said, I I can't undo that. I gave him my blessing. And he was probably upset about it, but he couldn't undo it. He couldn't repent. And we sought it with tears. Can I tell you something? That that's a warning that there is coming a day where repentance will not be available to us. But today is not that day for you. Today isn't that day for us. Today is a day for repentance because the blessing that God has promised to his sons is not one that, that is only coming to the one. It's, it's available for all of us. If we say, I need your help. If we say, I fail. If we say, I want that grace. I want to live that way. I want to repent and turn from this sin and not say, God, you can't have that spot in my life. And that's our encouragement today in faith, that we trust God. And I don't know what the circumstances are that you're facing. I don't know what it is that God's teaching you through that, but I'm praying for you as I need you to pray for me that rather than bitterness or frustration with God, that out of it would come faith. Out of it would come a deeper understanding of what he's doing in our lives. That your fears that you struggle with and that the failures that you have in your life can be evidences of God's grace as he transforms us over a period of time into the likeness of his son. Spouses, I'm, I'm encouraging you to talk together, to grow together, to be vulnerable together because those who have received grace can give it. We need to recognize our need for grace so that we can give it freely. Amen. So this morning, as we close the gathering, we're going to pray, and we're going to come, and we're going to receive communion. As we do this, I just want to, I'm going to invite you to stand up with me. Would you stand up? And I want to give an opportunity here. I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to ask in this room, if there's anybody in here today who's saying, I want to trust God. This may not be your first time saying that, but you're feeling, you came in today and you're feeling like your faith is weak or you're feeling like you don't know what's going on. You're not seeing the hand of God because you're frustrated. You're struggling. You're not alone. This is, if this is your first time, this is an invitation that we have to say, God, I trust you. I know your goodness for me means eternal life. I know that when you say later, that means it's going to be greater. So this morning, I'm going to invite you, if you're in that place this morning and you're feeling, I want to trust God again, or I want to trust him, would you raise your hand? Nobody looking around. Put that hand up. you're in here this morning and you're saying I want the grace of God I want it to mark my life I want to be somebody who's striving for holiness I want to be somebody who can give grace to others and not be a root of bitterness would you raise your hand do you pray with me this morning father We thank you that we are not illegitimate children. We thank you that you have called us to be part of your family. Would you help us not resist the discipline that comes from you? Would you help us to lean in to the discipline as we face different challenges and circumstances? That discipline 
It's not the circumstances themselves. It's the ability to decide to trust you, to trust your goodness, no matter what we face. So we say that this morning, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, today is a day for faith to be strengthened. And I pray that you would, you would breathe new hope and new faith into those who are hanging on by a thread this morning. Do you remind us of your goodness yet again? For all of us in this room who say, we want to be a beacon of hope. We want to be a beacon of grace. As people who have obtained the grace, would you help us to strive for peace and holiness in a new way? That we wouldn't lay back and rest as if we've got it figured out, but that we continue to pursue you, pursue what you have for us. And not in a proud way as somebody with a stubborn heart that says, oh, look at me, I've got it but in a humble way that allows us to walk alongside each other and encourage one another and say, keep going. Strengthen your hands and strengthen your weak knees. Obtain the grace because he's done it for us. So we thank you for that this morning. I pray that you would, you would speak that over us and into us every single day. In every relationship that we have, we'd be people of grace, living as if we know we've been forgiven a great debt that it would change our relationships, that we wouldn't be a root of bitterness bearing bitter fruit that people can't swallow because they don't, because it tastes gross. That you called us to be sweet fruit that would attract others because we are people of grace. Would you solidify that in us this morning? Ultimately, it's because of what you've done for us. We come every week and we come and we receive communion and we, we take this little cracker and this cup of juice and we say thank you because we couldn't do it. We couldn't pay for our sin. We couldn't live the perfect life, but you did it for us and you died on the cross for us. That we sang earlier that our sin, all of it, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We thank you, Jesus, for that. And we thank you that you rose from the dead and you called us into new life with you and we celebrate that and we remember that this morning as we come and we receive communion. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, I'm going to invite you to come forward and, and receive communion. You can take it back to your seat and just thank him individually or with your family and just pray together or pray on your own and just thank him. And then you can take it and then sing with us.